You win some, you lose some. That's actually the normal push and pull of political life. The Biden administration has their hands full with foreign and domestic issues, but has continued a relatively civil discourse with Republicans and Democrats. As the new government settles into a style that's more like chess and less like a bull in a china shop, I have to stop and ask, am I crazy or is this working for everyone? Welcome back to The Huddle. It's your source for inner circle analysis. I'm Brendan Kanaki, and I'm here with my partner in crime, Mark Ross. Mark, I decided to do some expert reading for this week just to try and look at everything that's going on in politics today. But on a serious note, is it just me or is there something going right in Washington for a change? even when they aren't going to plan for the Biden administration. What are you seeing this week? I think, yeah, I mean, you got normal process of government. Um, you got activity happening in foreign policy. You got activity happening in Capitol Hill. COVID relief is moving forward. Um, you know, the Biden administration is talking to uh, foreign leaders. So yeah, in some ways it's super boring. It is uh, government as it should be. When they say that government is so much about bureaucracy, it's about process, it's not all the thrillers that Tom Clancy would have you believe. I think we're settling in to, to the quiet droll of government that maybe we, uh, we didn't realize during the Trump years just what we were uh, giving up. Not so exciting. I might leave the thing about the Trump thing the whole experience was that, you know, he really had no idea what he was doing. He never really had a core set of beliefs other than, you know, getting attention for himself. And I think the country suffered in the sense we didn't make any progress on infrastructure, for example. We certainly took a step back on the global stage. And, you know, government is not that cool. It's not that sexy, but it's important. Yeah, if, if you've ever... Uh, been to a diner and you watched just a, a regular good at his job chef trying to make an omelet, it probably is not that interesting. If you gave an absolute amateur that same job during the breakfast uh, rush, I'm sure it would be a lot more chaotic. That's how I'd like to sum up the last four years. But I want to dive right in. When we started this show, we were looking at the Biden cabinet. About half of those names have been, that have been submitted have been approved. We've got a Secretary of State. We've got Treasury, Defense, Commerce, Agriculture. But we've still got many key positions empty. What's your readout? Yeah, you're right. I think we're right now 13 of 23 cabinet positions have been confirmed and sworn into office. It's interesting. I did some research before we came on the show. And uh, both for Trump and Obama, it took nearly 100 days for their cabinets to be sworn in. So we're seeing, you know, the length of cabinet approval process being drawn out. Um, but obviously, they just talked about some of the key top offices, if you will, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Treasury, they've all been filled, not surprising. Um, where there's been disagreement is what I would say is those kind of agency or jobs that kind of work at the intersection of policy and politics, education, HHS, labor, uh, HUD, you know, some of these things are really at the dividing point of politics, culture, and kind of where we are as a nation. So it's not surprising that some of these lower level jobs haven't been filled in yet. And it may take, you know, we're only, what, 30, 40 days into the 
Biden administration, we could be looking at this another two months of this. I'm surprised that some of these now we knew that Merrick Garland was going to be uh, maybe a drawn out process to become the attorney general. This is a job that gets a lot of scrutiny. But also, while you've got environment is such a top issue for the Biden administration, I am surprised to see that we have no EPA administrator. We have no secretary of interior. They even started the hearings for Deb Haaland. And then uh, we just we haven't finished the job there. Yeah, my speculation is, uh, especially with looking with COVID relief, it looks like it's going to come to fruition probably, you know, mid-March in terms of getting a bill to President Biden room to sign in. I think Team Biden is somewhat content and happy that they've got those key kind of top jobs, Treasury, State, Defense kind of filled in. Maybe they're content to kind of take the step back, let, you know, HHS, Interior, Education kind of, you know, languish, if you will address that after kind of a key vote. You know, during during a normal time, the HHS secretary would have been critical during a health emergency. Right now, we've got these executive task forces that have uh, superseded the Department of Health and Human Services. And so you've got Jeff Zients and, and, and some of these other folks that are reporting directly to the president, Anthony Fauci, you know, a big name for the last year. And, and he, he wasn't approved as part of the cabinet, but we don't have a, a, a approved HHS secretary. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, it, you would think during the COVID stuff, but, you know, you're right. We've got more kind of task forces. There's more and more activity in the White House using executive orders to kind of direct and govern the nation. So um, the politics, when you've got a slim majority in the House and you've got literally a tie Senate 50-50, um, there's not a lot of room. So my guess is, like I said, they'd rather they get these key jobs filled in. Let's get the COVID relief package. And then in March and the end of March and early April, let's force through the rest of the cabinet. But there was the first big political defeat for Joe Biden this week. We had uh, the nomination of Neera Tandon to lead the Office of Management and Budget. And after some controversy over past tweets she had sent, tweets stopping a cabinet position from being filled, all because she has been critical of both Republicans and Democrats. And one of the critical people actually came down to be a Democrat who didn't want to fall in line, Joe Manchin. Yeah, the second most important Joe in D.C. Yeah, I think as you started the this edition of the huddle, you know, I think you're right. I mean, Joe Biden has been in this town for a long time. In fact, you know, he was scraping with uh, members of Ronald Reagan's cabinet. I mean, you know, Joe Biden has been in this town for a long time. He's won some, he's lost some. So the idea that, you know, he lost an OMB director, I don't think it's too much, you know, water off his back. If there's a double standard, I mean, obviously the tweets that sent uh, Trump sent, (laughs) you know, would get him disqualified from virtually any job. Um, But, you know, no big deal. Do I think uh, Tandon is the only person that can run OMB? I don't think so. And also I think it's a reflection the fact that, you know, she's, you know, she's had past roles in administrations. She's worked at a think tank. She's been more of an advocate, if you will, for kind of progressive left policies. She's not an elected official, kind of like a Mayor Pete or Jennifer Granholm, who was governor of Michigan. You know, she doesn't have maybe a national kind of electoral standing. So the fact that she was sacrificed or not passed through. But when we look at the power, the influence, the importance of this 50-50 split that you've got, these moderate, somewhat centrists, or the ones willing to cross party lines, Joe Manchin, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, these are, these are some of the people who are, are going to be able to drive 
people to the negotiation table rather than just steamroll through. Bernie Sanders even said that he was he was um, not a big fan of this nomination of Tandon, and he, he, he may have actually have voted for her if, if it would have come up to the vote. But, you know, the, this idea of taking back the nomination because Joe Manchin was so um, upfront about the fact he wasn't going to, to fall in line with Democrats. I'm sure they can actually probably find her a role that doesn't require Senate confirmation. And I think um, I think that's actually the plan that uh, the president has said he'd, he'd like to see her uh, maybe find another job. But yeah, so but, you know, while while um, while it seems that we are playing nicely in the, the sandbox and it's yielding some results and at least there's these, this active, productive debate in the legislature, I want to bring up another uh, aspect. The president announced this week that. Um, there's a historic partnership that's being put in place um, between Merck Pharmaceuticals and that they're going to work with their competitor, Johnson & Johnson, whose new vaccine was just approved to try and help get us over this next hump of the pandemic. Mark, you have a lot of expertise in international business. When you've got two giants like this, two billion dollar companies, how big a deal is it that these two people are going to now cross boardrooms here and uh, do something for the good of do, for the good of the country? No, it's definitely unprecedented. I mean, in fact, you know, the team Biden is using the War Powers Act to get this through. You know, this goes back to I think the '50s after World War II when this came in, essentially put the country on war footing to eradicate this horrible disease. So yeah, it's a big deal. Anytime you've got competitors joining together to you know, expedite this vaccine, it's great. And I think the timetable that the uh, Biden administration announced this week, saying by the end of May, every American, every adult American who wants the vaccine can get it, is probably worth it. And uh, it's a positive step forward. I'm sure Johnson & Johnson will be enemies again in the future and competitors, but for the time being, working together is for the benefit of not only America, but hopefully other parts of the world. I had, I had even uh, remembered asking you several weeks ago, if, if you thought that there was this opportunity for the federal government to almost seize the vaccine and say, well, you know, hand it out to every pharmaceutical maker they can get their hands on. And you said, you know, it's not eminent domain. This is not something that we can just, you know, take and use and use and use. But, you know, the, the administration definitely is claiming its, uh, its place in the negotiation of this deal. So I think, you know, if, if there's encouragement, Hard to say if there's going to maybe be some tax incentives or other, um, you know, pats on the back that come later on. But I think this is a positive. We are seeing the vaccine get out there that they say with the addition of the single dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that this might be the greatest way to get a lot of vaccines out into the marketplace. We saw this week Dolly Parton, who gave a million dollars plus to help with the formulation of the vaccine through research, actually get her first shot, which was exciting for a lot of people. But we're seeing an overconfidence spurred by this um, next stage of success. Texas and Mississippi announced that they are removing the mask mandates in their state. I just got to say, this is, as you like to say, a bonehead move. <laughs> I mean... This is the problem, right? I mean, you know, you hammer down this disease and then, you, you know, feel everything's okay. You go back and you're dancing on the streets. Then four weeks later, 
the virus is back. Even the governor of Colorado is saying he expects uh, by the by this summer everything will be back to normal, whatever the hell that means. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to exactly know what the, the situation is in Texas, Mississippi, Colorado. When you look at what's happening in Europe, you know they're closing down borders. There's debates maybe in France of going back to a you know heavier shutdown. Um, the UK has extended their kind of like back to normal kind of mentality to June 21st, the first day of summer. The Texas thing is interesting, too, because Abbott, obviously the horrible situation with the energy debacle, you know, I don't want to say this is an opportunity to rip off the mask and kind of change the story. But you got to be a little cynical and be you know, a little surprised that he wants to move beyond the energy debacle, especially with him up for a reelection in 2022. On this show, you introduced the Taylor Swift index saying that when taylor swift is ready to go back on tour you think that would be a signal for us getting back to normal i have to say i as i look at uh, greg abbott the governor of texas or taylor swift i have to side with taylor swift as being the better indicator of if we're ready comic-con was canceled again this week cma fest canceled this week there are a lot of people using the same mentality you did to say, we're not going to put our money where our mouths are. We are not ready to go yet. So I, I, I just think we are getting ready to face a backslide if we follow the mentality of Texas and Mississippi. It's hard to believe that Taylor Swift is actually, you know, have a better handle on COVID than the governor of Texas, but that's where we are. You know, you're right. I mean, you look at some of these key events, what's happening around the cultural events, you know, Glastonbury in the UK has been canceled. Uh, it looks like there's going to be no international spectators. The Tokyo Summer Games happen at all. Um, I don't know. It's a really interesting situation. I mean, obviously, you know, we're entering almost one year of some kind of COVID-related shutdown situation here in the Northeast. Um, yeah, we all want to get on with our lives and be kind of back to normal, whatever that means. But, you know, why rush it? You know, why not say, let's take the mask off, let's get everybody vaccinated, at least, you know, 40 50% of the population, and then take the mask off? say we're 100% open, seems a little aggressive. Obviously, that's also the mindset that if we would have gone for a more stringent lockdown in March, April last year, um, you know, 30 days at home could have actually meant thousands of less deaths and a much shorter um, overall pandemic. We'll never really know. And, and, so, you know, that's, that's the question is for everything that seems to unite us, there's also many things that divide us. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about that kind of divide. I know you want to get to an interview you did. Our guest is a great reporter and anchor. Why don't you tell me about Jessica Stone? Yeah, I'm excited to have Jessica Stone come into the huddle. Um, Jessica, I've known since 2010. Did a lot of work together around the U.S.-China commercial relationship. Um, she's posed a lot of tough questions to me. One of the things I'm excited to ask Jessica about uh, is how does news get made? You know, she's been an in-the-field reporter. She's been an anchor behind the desk. I'm really kind of interested, especially someone who's worked inside the White House press corps, to say, hey, how do we make news? What gets? What is newsworthy these days? So I'm here with Jessica Stone. She's coming into the huddle which is fun because I've been on the other side. Jessica's interviewed me. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You've been a correspondent. You're, you're still a correspondent. You're a correspondent. You're an anchor. 
You're an author, you're a policy nerd, you're a wife, you're a mother, you're a friend, you are a jack of all trades. You've been in this town for a number of years. Um, 13 or 14. Yeah. yeah you, met me, you met me young. You've, you've helped yeah. me come up in the world, actually, Mark. I met you early <laughs> on. I think it was like 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. 2010, yeah. maybe. Um, what do I get for my 10 year anniversary? Paper? Lace? I but I don't know. Let's talk about what it's like to cover the White House. Obviously, we got a new administration. We got a new press secretary. You've been a member of the White House press corps. New-ish. A lot of things I think feel familiar to people that are back, that are still doing it. But most, a lot of people have left. They're exhausted. Are you kidding me? Four years of Trump is like 20 years of covering anybody else. What is it like covering? Yeah. Like, can you just talk about for our viewers, like, what is it like to be in the White House press corps day in, day out? Well, um, under Obama, it was very different than under Trump. The Obama administration did had its favorites uh, and, and doled out its, its scoops to the usual suspects. And then there were the rest of us. And then we had sort of the wild, wild west in the Trump years. And <laughs> I'm sure everybody watching could feel the wild, wild west. But in some ways, it was like, um, you know, it was just like candy. I mean, there was a lot of news. There was a lot of intrigue. There were a lot of people leaking. Um, and there was actually a lot more access even to the president. So as a, someone who was actually in the foreign press corps um, within the White House press corps, that was really exciting. Uh, I don't think that um, our viewers appreciated the policies emanating from the White House, but the accessibility of that model was, uh, was pretty intoxicating. And I think if you asked people um, whether they thought that was a positive, I think they would say yes. I think the downside of it, of course, was that there was so much coming out that was contradictory because there was no um, effort to centralize policy and background reporters in order to control the message effectively. Yeah. And some of that doesn't um, doesn't wind up giving you know the public a lot of that doesn't wind up giving the public a message of of stability, which I think is very clearly not what we had over the last four years. It does seem to like. I'm a huge consumer of news, obviously a big fan of what you guys do day in and day out, but I always get the sense that maybe the White House gets too much coverage. I mean, maybe it's easier covering one person as opposed to the chaos and craziness of 535 people on Capitol Hill. I mean, what's your thought about that? Is yeah, the, you is know, the White I House think, press corps too important? I think, uh, first of all, I think that's true. Uh, second of all, I think it was truer under Trump because he was such a story in and of himself. Um, and I think lastly, I would say, yeah, it's, it's not a positive. The legislation that comes out of Congress um, is more representative of the people. It has to have more buy-in from the people. And that's really the place where you as the public can be heard much more than you can ever be heard through the executive branch. Uh, and I know that we are seeing a evolution from much more um, executive action emanating from the White House. So we don't have right. buy-in from Congress. And I think that's very problematic because it's not stable. It's not stable for the markets. It's not stable for the people whose lives it affects. I mean, just think if you are a gay American, you're a federal worker who's gay, who has a family, your benefits mm -hmm. were jerked, were given to you and then jerked away and then given to you and then jerked away during the last four to six years. So nobody <clears throat> wants to feel like that. And um, I think that's really the downside to to um, governing that way. I don't know that that's even a controversial point of view. I know that the counter argument is that, hey, we can't get buy-in from Congress because it's a mess and it's very polarized and I get it, but you know, that's democracy. It's messy. There's uh, th that's the way the founders designed it.
when you're covering such an important topic like the White House and D.C., in fact, your footprint, you're really working, to, you yourself have worked at the intersection of business and politics on a global scale. I mean, how do you figure out what to cover? I mean, like, what is news to you? Well, what's news to me, it's not always news to my colleagues. I'm, I, I like the policy stuff. I'm not interested in who's dating who and who's, uh, you know, <clears throat> who's wearing what and <clears throat> whether the, the couple in the White House are sleeping in the same bedroom or not. I'm interested in um, <clears throat> big global technology policy. I'm really interested in what, as you and I have talked about many times, I'm interested in the CFIUS reviews. I'm interested in the race for technological Cifius. supremacy. Nothing more Chinese exciting than Americans. What? <laughs> Nothing more exciting than CFIUS. <laughs> I nerd out on CFIUS. By, by the way, CFIUS is the Committee on, on Foreign Investment in the United States for the uninitiated, which I don't blame you if you aren't, because it's a very narrow subset, subset of us uh, policy nerds that probably are into that. Listen, now that I'm a mom, I'm really thinking about what are the challenges economically my kids are going to face. I think um, the way that we educated kids over the last year is very problematic. Um, not, I noticed a lot of changes in, in the kids that I saw being educated online. And there's a real downside to our competitiveness with that. Um, and, I, and I'm interested in following that and watching how that unfolds in terms of the economy. I'm interested in how um, the Federal Reserve has so much control over the value of the dollar and how we invest and uh, the bubbles that we create, whether it's college loans or housing bubbles or Bitcoin um, or gold, I'm really fascinated by that. So yeah, I kind of go for those big stories. And I think whenever a Fed governor speaks, I'm interested in listening <laughs> to that. I think more and more, there's a real argument to be made that if you want to be able to understand U.S. business decisions, you have to be watching Washington and you need to understand what's going on here and why. And there's a lot of people who will be who will be quick to tell you they know um, <clears throat> and can game it out. And that's why you see the markets react a lot. But I'm starting to try to really find and keep regular contact with the people that I feel have a better track record. Yeah. And um, that's an important industry. <clears throat> it's an important communications facet that a lot of you know, sort of emerging college students and young communicators probably don't really consider that you have a lot of power in translating Washington to the business community. Um, <clears throat> that's a big place of influence. So for people who are looking to be influential, I would argue that's a that's a hot spot. Well, I agree with you 100%. I think, uh, yeah, more DC. In some ways, like business students probably and younger college kids probably benefit from more civics and public affairs than, uh, you know, maybe mathematics. But that's another story. You've worn hats as a reporter. You've been a, a correspondent. You've been an anchor. Can you tell me about, like, the two different kind of mindsets for that job and maybe which one you prefer? Do you like being in the field or do you like being behind the desk? So I think it depends on the station in life. For me, I've been a journalist. It's been my only constant profession throughout my life. So I have chosen not to be behind the desk for most of my career. I like to be in the field. I like to be up close to the action. I like to be in danger. I like to be um, experiencing what the people that we're talking about in the story are experiencing to the extent possible. <clears throat> so for me, that's been very important. Now that I have small children, I do like the ability that being at the desk gives you to A, be much more involved in the editorial process and the whole arc of a show and the, the overall story you're telling with a 30 minute program or an hour program. And I also like the ability as the host to really drive the conversation with interviews. 
I'm really growing into a part of my own professional life where I'm really enjoying just asking questions. Whereas there's been other parts of my life where I really wanted to storytell. I really wanted to explore. I still want to do those things. Um, not as interested in being in mortal danger as I previously <laughs> have been. Um, but, uh, you know, so many, so many of the challenges of this century are, are very, very scary, but not very hot war-y. They're very cyber war-y. So I feel like I can cover some of that from a desk. And then if I need to go talk to people or see something up close, I welcome the opportunity. Anybody want to send me? I'm all there. So we're at the beginning of Women's History Month, uh, March, which is fantastic. Um, you know, obviously, like you work at the intersection of politics and business. Any thoughts on, you know, women in the boardroom? There's been a lot of good stuff been released. Obviously, we're seeing more and more uh, American or American CEOs be named as women. Um, where, where, what's your thinking around that? I mean, it's kind of a big topic, but any thoughts on that, the intersection of uh, women in business? Two big thoughts come to mind. The first is that um, women manage differently than men. Um, particularly, they manage people of the, their own gender differently than they manage people that are not their gender. I have not experienced a lot of great female managers. I don't know why it's harder to have them. Um, I would like to see more of them do better. I'd love to see more female leaders mentoring other younger female leaders because we don't do that enough. We are often threatened by younger women, to be honest. And I have felt that. I have also um, really enjoyed kind of coming into a place where I have younger women coming to me and say, how did you do that? Or how did you face that? And I appreciate the, the question and I appreciate the chance to talk about it. And I, I also look forward to them going farther than I have. The other point I would make is obviously something that's also being written about a lot right now, which is how the pandemic has set working women back immensely. Um, I have been incredibly fortunate not to be one of those women, um, incredibly fortunate, but um, it's far too easy to take childcare and schooling for granted and to not really make the connection of how vital it is that those services be treated like vital, vital services that, that should not be discontinued. Just like I think we're going to learn negative things about the impact on kids and um, their lack of ability to um, compete as well as they might have and earn as well as they might have, I think we're going to find the same with women and um, we're gonna miss out on their contribution exponentially. Um, I don't think it's irreversible. I don't wanna to be too pessimistic, but it's definitely a concern. No, it's interesting. You know, I think March 11th for me is kind of like the, you know, the COVID start date and, you know, we're mm-hmm. a week away from that. And it's hard to believe that um, this has been a year experiment and possibly it's gonna go on longer, but let's talk about something more exciting. You. <laughs> are very prolific. I mean, you're like an entrepreneur, you're out there reporting still, you've gone back to school and added some more education, but you're also an author. And today, Cross the Divide is out. Yes, you Crossing are the Divide is out. you a published author. Amazing. Congratulations. Oh my gosh. Like, Tell me about the book. This, uh, this started a year ago when I started taking a class um, and It is my story and my experiences and the lessons I've learned from them, both as um, a daughter of 
very different parents, religiously and ethnically. There was a lot of jumble of things to get to get through and to work through um, through the the early part of my life. And it obviously we're having a huge conversation about race and diversity inclusion, but it's even broader than that. Our country is more melted than ever, and the divisions that are in our country. Um, are only going to be healed by more understanding that's really given me a platform to talk about these. The the same skills that we use in cross-cultural competency and in navigating the divides between cultures, ethnicities, race, and gender, and religion are the same ones that we need right now to talk to our fellow Americans. Yeah. And um, I, I really was never more struck than after January 6th, after that horrible day, and started getting phone calls from friends in the media who were like, Hey, can you come on and talk about your book? And can you come on and talk about this? And I was like, really? Like, Oh yeah, I guess the kind there's like, (laughs) I mean, not, not like ungrateful, but just, wow. Yeah. There's a lot more um, parallels here than not. And, and so I'm excited to have people learn from these insights. I'm hoping for business uh, business programs to be picking up this book and putting it on their reading list. I think this is a great book for people that are going to work abroad or people like yourself who've worked with a different culture or going to, or just people um, going into the workforce and say, hey, listen, what are what is a mindset I need to have going into this adventure of, of being in the American workforce that where I could be working across continents technologically or I could be crossing divides within my own office space. If we ever get back to an office space, but I think we will. <laughs> and it, you basically identified 20 skills. How did you put the book together? Is it 20 different stories, essentially, that kind of capture yeah. those skills? Yeah, it's, it's 20 different stories. Um, going back to childhood, I mean, I really think that the baseline that you have um, to compare your culture to other cultures means that, the, and this is a exciting preview, um, Uh, lesson number one is you can't understand other cultures until you understand your own. So you have to have a baseline for comparison and that's going to be the way that you sort of calibrate and adjust. And (laughs) I I, I think that also gives you license to explore your own background and, and, and differences within it. Culture does not leave a person. There are going to be things about the way you view the world and other people and interact that just won't go away unless you consciously identify them and try to change them. So, um, yeah, and you and I met through the course of having um, a great interest in China, although I wouldn't say that I um, came into my job at CGTN having had a a great history of studying China or a great understanding. And I learned an awful lot there, often making huge mistakes and learning later that I had done the wrong thing. And so I also share like, look, you're, you're really going to have to be humble and, and um, be upfront that you're, you don't know it all about uh, these other cultures, uh, be a student, approach people as a student and um, ask for forgiveness before, during and after. Be gracious to them and ask for grace in return. So jessica-stone.com has that, all the order information. One of the things I do on my website is I would love to have people share their cross-cultural experiences with me. I think we, we can um, sort of build a dialogue about continuing the conversation that comes out of the idea that we're sharing our experiences and learning from each other. I would love to hear from your listeners and viewers, uh, what, what they've learned, maybe the hard way. Oftentimes I think our stories are born out of learning something the hard way. I'm really going to be watching. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's also really exciting to see the media landscape continue to fragment in ways that I think are actually really positive for, thought leadership and for um, thinking 
thinking folks and people that want really to dive into more informational conversation. I think this whole alternative media setting is giving voice to people that don't just want the 30 minute, um, here's the news, I'm going to tell you how it is kind of approach. And I think that's really what these um, newer generations want and need. They don't want to be talked down to and they want to be, uh, they want to be helped to understand. Yeah, it's a really interesting world to watch right now. And I'm excited to be part of the dialogue. And uh, I'll be speaking around on every podcast I can find and also talking to universities and community groups. I've just, gosh, writing a book is like just so fun to be able to, to talk to all the people from all of the different experiences I've had and be like, hey, listen, you you gave me something that I can pass on. I think that's rewarding for me, but hopefully it's also rewarding for the people who've sewn into me. Um, and I think that's important to, to communicate to them. I love it. Well, I can't wait to get a copy myself and dig into it. And I appreciate you coming on the huddle. This was great to have you yeah. on the other side of the camera for once. That's good. But thank you so good much. <laughs> I'm not as afraid. I'll, I'll do this again if you let me. I love it. No, we'll do it again. I love it. Hopefully we'll do it in person. Even yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> Mark, that was a great chat with Jessica. She uh, obviously brings a very worldly viewpoint, having worked both uh, in um, American and international media. Uh, I'm always glad when we can bring people like that in to give us uh, some additional perspective so that we're not just talking at ourselves as we do sometimes. That was great, especially the day of her book launch. Very excited to have Jessica inside the hub. Absolutely. There's one more thing before we go. I think you know what it is. Mark, who do you want in your huddle this week? So I have a very melancholy, unfortunately, someone to pick in the huddle for me. I'm going to go with Vernon Jordan, who sadly passed away this week, 85 years old. Jordan was an absolute power figure, you know, somebody who was the president of the National Urban League in his 30s. He was a civil rights giant. He went to Howard University. Famously, was one of Bill Clinton's closest advisors, all around sharp-dressed man, gentleman, scholar, and really rose to become one of the great wise men on the same level of Clark Clifford, Robert Strauss, and D.C. I mean, a real power broker, smart guy, sadly will be missed, not only in this, in this city, but also for the nation. Brendan, who do you have in your huddle? I definitely wanted to pick somebody who, um, a power broker of a different type. Uh, I was going to pick Norman Lear, who received the Carol Burnett Award from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association on the Golden Globes this week. Norman Lear is nearly 99 years old and has been making television for over six decades. He helped to introduce taboo topics to our pop culture landscape, um, making shows like All in the Family and The Jeffersons. He helped introduce conversations about race and sex and classism, uh, famously into our entertainment. But also he was paving the way for the way that shows got made in Hollywood. He's done a lot of good for people. And at 98 years old, he still has a lot of life to give. I happen to see that he, uh, he has a weekly Zoom meeting with comics like Bob Saget, where they sit and talk about <laughs> life and smoke cigars. And I think that uh, someone like Norman Lear is doing both a lot of good through their career, but is still trying to pass that wisdom on while he's around with us. 
No, I love it. I think uh, that is a Zoom meeting I'd like to crash sometime. That sounds like a lot of fun. Hey, Brendan, thanks again for another great week. I think we covered a lot of territory. We covered the cabinet. We crossed the divide with Jessica Stone. We talked about two legends. And I think we're going to be back for another huddle celebrating possibly the one-year anniversary of the COVID lockdown, if you can believe that. So thanks for joining. All right, I'll bring my mask. See you next week.